So this evening's reading is from 1 Corinthians. Is it coming up on the screen as well? Chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it is not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Graham, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Lovely to be with all of you today. Hope you've had a nice day out in the sunshine uh, and... Uh, just to pick up from one thing earlier in the service, uh, which is that uh, the Tear Fund uh, video that you saw. Um, Tear Fund is one of our mission partners uh, here at Christchurch, and so uh, a, a portion of the money that we uh, give away each year does go to them. Uh, so anybody who gives, uh, and if you do, thank you to Christchurch. Uh, part of what you give to us, uh, we give on uh, to them. Uh, so this last year, uh, we gave away... Uh, to other churches uh, and Christian organizations like Tear Fund. Uh, we gave away 70,000 70, pounds and uh, part of that will be uh, for Tear Fund. Uh, we just love what they do and what they stand for. Uh, so that is uh, them. Uh, now we are finishing our series, as Nate said, looking at 1 Corinthians uh, 12 and 13. And if we could, in a sense, recapture what we've seen, the key things from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it would essentially be that image that we, the church, uh, are the body of Christ. And that that image, that the church is like a body, it's not the only image that the New Testament uses about the church, but it is probably the most frequently used and it's one of the most powerful ones. And the particular points that Paul has in saying the church is like a body is to underline that we are all different and that being different is a really good thing. 
So he just stresses that in several different ways. We're all different, and that is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's as good a thing as your arm being different to your leg or your heart being different to your brain. We need all of those things for our bodies to be complete and to be working, and so it is with the church. We all have gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit, and so part of our journey as Christian people is to understand what gifts God has given me in this season of my life and to own them and then to use them uh, generously as so many of you do. Now as we think about living out uh, this important truth that that is what the body of Jesus is like, it's not what many people have said it is over the years, in particular the last hundred years or so, uh, the dominant model in English society is that um, the, the church is a bit like a club, and the club employs uh, an employee called the vicar. And uh, the vicar's job is to kind of do stuff and to make things happen, and occasionally the vicar will ask one or two other people to help, but essentially it, it's, it's a club. It's like a, it's like a golf club or a social club, and uh, the, the club pays for some premises, the church building, and it pays, it play, play, it pays for uh, some staff, and they sort of put things on and make things happen. And that's been the dominant uh, image in our last 100 years or so, and it's complete and utter hogwash nonsense. The church, we are the body of Christ. Each of us important, each of us different, each with gifts to use them accordingly. As we think about how to, in a sense, how to make that happen, how to establish that, then for me as a preacher, there are some really obvious but ridiculous things that I could say. So I could use guilt and plenty of preachers have done so. I may have even done so in the past. And so, and so I could stand up here and go, oh, look, we've all got to work a little bit harder. And uh, we've all just got to, you know, just sort of really get stuck in and particularly feel bad. If you're not stuck in, you should be stuck in. We are not using guilt ever, ever, ever. Nothing built on guilt is ever going to be any good. We could build uh, on uh, on busyness and offering, in a sense, to keep you busy and fulfilled, uh, dangling the carrot of busyness in front of people who are eager to please and to be occupied. And so our pitch might be, be busy in the church and be fulfilled and have a good life. But actually, there are better ways to calm the incessant insecurity of our hearts, which is why I'm so thankful that 1 Corinthians 13 follows 1 Corinthians 12. It's such a relief to me because it means my job today is not to make you feel guilty about anything. It's not to lure you into a life of frantic busyness. It's just to remind you of one thing, one thing, love. That's the why, that's the how. Paul's point in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love is the most excellent way to carry on our lives and be a church together for two reasons. First reason, it just has value. It is the best thing. Second reason is because it will outlast everything else. It's a bit like Abba. You know, other people come and go, Abba, just keep on going and going and going forever. 
Uh, Paul says that even the gifts that we lovingly use in his service, even the, the very best things that we do, so, you know, you know the Anya singing her most beautifully and most angelically and most movingly, even that one day will fade away. Hard to believe, I know. But even that will fade away. And what will remain is love. And the, the love that our musicians express in their worship and they help us to express, that will stay. But some of those gifts will fade away. Now today, we're going to offer you the chance to come forward in a few moments' time and receive prayer and to receive the anointing of your hands with oil. Let me explain. The prayer will be something along these lines. May God's love be poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And for those Bible uh, real experts here, we've just nicked that straight from Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It's a good word, poured, isn't it? May God's love be poured into your heart. It's all about extravagance and about uh, generosity. And the anointing with oil carries with it the, the recognition that everything we can do and should be God's work, God's caring, God's action in the world it is, is, is what we go out from here and get involved with. We want for each other God's blessing on the whole of our lives. Every bit, every daunting bit, every exciting bit. Not just the church bits and pieces, but all the bits and pieces. And so in a few moments' time, we'll welcome each of you to come to the front, to be prayed for, and to be anointed. Picturing as you do what and where you are walking into this week. Picturing all the places where you serve, and where you love, and where you seek to make a difference. God's ambition, we believe, for us as a community, is not simply that we are a well-oiled machine where we have the perfect rotor system for jobs that is always full and that never has any mistakes in it. God's ambition for us is that we are a living body of people captivated by his love. That's where we're heading. So, 1 Corinthians 13 has three very distinct sections, as you may have picked up when Graham was reading, and it brings with it three very distinct feelings about what it means for God's love to be poured out into our hearts. I want to examine those in turn, and then we're going to pray together. So, the first comes, if you've, if you've got a Bible with you, you're welcome to turn to it in verses 1, 2, and 3. So, the first feeling that you might come to prayer with tonight is the feeling that you are leading a hollow life. And Paul addresses those people who may seem outwardly impressive, but are actually hollow. They are, if you like, a triumph of, of image over substance. Like, the, he compares these kinds of people to a great gong that is sounded. So imagine, you know, imagine a kind of a gong that's kind of like the size of a dinner table. It's like eight foot across and someone comes and gives it a, a massive thwack and the whole building resonates for like 30 seconds. That gong is impressive. It's attention grabbing. But if that's all there is, it's not that impressive. And Paul talks about Christians who think highly of their own selves. Uh, in Corinth, 
Uh, Paul knew that they were particularly excited about one or two of the gifts of the Spirit, in particular the gift of speaking in tongues, and it made them feel like they were really important. Paul says, without love, any gift, including the gift of speaking in tongues, is nothing. Without love, gifts of prophecy, which are so important, the revealing of great mysteries, they are worthless. And most outrageously, Paul says, even examples of extravagant giving and compassion. So even if someone tonight whips out their credit card and donates, I don't know, 25,000 pounds to the church, if that's done without love as the thing that drives it, it's nothing. Even more outrageously, he says that if someone were to give up their life, the ultimate sacrifice, which of course resonates with the sacrifice of Jesus, but that's not done in love, then actually it's worthless. It's a sham. It's the glitzy coating on a hollow soul. Paul forcefully pinpoints something that we recognize but are more cautious to admit. An impressive life... And of course, in Winchester, you see lots of impressive lives, even an impressive spiritual life, Uh, somebody using beautifully the gifts that God has given. These things can and sometimes do mask a hollow life, a life that is devoid of love. It's so pointless, Paul is saying, the God who is himself love and has acted so decisively in love offers to pour out his love into our hearts long before we pay attention to our brilliant careers or even a worthy use of his gifts. So maybe as you come for prayer today, you need to bring with you the disturbing feeling that you're actually a bit hollow. You've learned the moves. You talk the talk. You pass within the Christian tribe as one of them. But actually, all you're trying to do is fool people, and it is really, really exhausting, and it's dishonest. And instead of God's love being the driving force in you, it's vanity or pride or blind panic. Well, if that's the case, then come. Come asking for it to be God's love that fills your heart and transforms you. And come asking for God to save you from superficial brilliance or from loveless worship. Loveless worship is such a horrible, dry, meaningless thing. Be saved from it by the love of God. The second section comes in verses 4 to 7, offers a new perspective for us. Maybe this resonates with you more deeply. It's that you have... You, have, you might describe your life as difficult. It's not hollow. You would just say, my life is too difficult for love. Now, some of you may know that this part of the chapter, verses 4 to 7, love is patient, love is kind, is very popular at weddings. It's like a top hat and tails or a beautiful bridal gown. And a lot of people kind of nick it from 1 Corinthians 13, completely ignoring 1 Corinthians 12, often completely ignoring 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3, and 8 to 13 at the end. They just kind of borrow that bit because it sounds good at a wedding. And it looks good on an inspirational uh, poster or meme alongside a cute kitten 
and a ball of string. You know, it, really great words. Love is patient, love is kind, you know, fantastic. So inspiring. But then most of us, as we hear those words, are thinking, my life is way too difficult for these far-reaching standards of love. We think, well, I'm proud, and I envy, and I'm easily angered. And so I just, I don't see, I'd love these things to be true. I'd love them to be true of the people that I know. I'd love them to be true of me. But to be honest with you, life is just too difficult. How can this description of love be an everyday kind of thing? We can just imagine. So when people get married here at Christ Church, and Louise knows this, uh, then I'm the vicar, I stand here, and the groom stands there, and the bride stands there. And you can just imagine having heard that lovely reading that the groom, for all of 15 minutes, feels that he can love his bride and his wife-to-be with all of those things. He can be patient and kind and long-suffering and he won't ever be rude and he won't ever get angry. You know, but we all know that by the end of the service, he's already like, forgotten or blown half of them. It's just, we just think it's not possible. Life doesn't work like that. And it's, so it's, we, we're quite glad that we have these words in the scriptures, but we just think, actually, I can't really keep them. Which is why we pray, friends. We cry out to God in longing that it would be his love that is pumping through our vein. And that these verses spur us on to a deeper repentance and a longing for his love. God's image has been spoilt in each one of us by our mistakes and by the selfishness of other people who have not loved us well. We long to be loved, but instead, all of us have been hurt and let down and betrayed and deserted. Or the fruit of love has been denied us. We haven't received the protection, the trust, the nurturing that we need. Which is why we pray. We pray because patience and forgiveness and being slow to anger are such hard things to do. We pray because even when we might want to love like God, there is a voice that is shouting within us to stop being so weak and stupid. And if you take the risk of loving other people, all that's going to happen is you're going to be hurt or taken for granted. We pray because God's promise, prom, God promises that the more we experience the qualities of his love, the more we are able and willing to share this love with others. So it may be that you come for prayer in a moment with the sense of two things. It's the difficulty, but the necessity of love. You see that it's difficult. You see that the, the ideals of love are high. And that's a problem. But you know too, there is a necessity about love, that you want to love. And so we come together to pray for God to pour out his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit. The last section of this chapter in verses 8 to 13 gives us a third important theme for prayer. And that is the sense that we are living an incomplete life. Despite so much of life seeming really stable, really rock solid, 
Most of us are aware of a hundred little ways of being reminded how fragile we are. We know particularly at those mile markers of being ill, or having someone that we love die, or actually failing in an area of our life, particularly if we've not failed much before, or maybe a, a new life in the family. We're aware at those moments how incomplete our grasp of things is, and how messy and how tangled our present experience is. This, this passage encourages us to think in this way. It encourages us to recognize that this life and this body and this horizon of understanding and this expression of God's people, the church, is only the beginning. It's not the full story. It's just the beginning. Now, when Paul says in verse 8, love never fails, he clearly does not mean love never breaks down or when you love someone, things never go wrong. Because pretty much every single person here, if we went around the room, could say, this is when love, this is when love went wrong, when I was betrayed, when I was let down, when someone walked out on me, you know, whatever. So it, it's clearly not that that he's meaning here. That's complete nonsense. In saying love never fails, he means that it will never collapse. It will never fall into ruin and it will never be outdated. God's love is the ultimate reality and while other things, even gifts uh, that we have in the church, that gifts that are really important, all of those will one day fade because their time has come. God's love, its time will never come. And Paul uses two images to reinforce this point. The first is the difference between a child and an adult. A child and an adult do not think or reason or feel in the same way. Talk to both and you will find that out. The feelings and thoughts of a child are true and real, but we pray that for most of them, there are exceptions, as they grow older, they mature and they blossom and they change. And Paul says, that's a bit like how it is. At the moment, we, we are the children in that picture. We are the people whose grasp of the world and how it works and who God is is incomplete. One day, we will grow up when we see God face to face into a fuller, deeper knowledge, just as a five-year-old becomes a 25-year-old. The second image is a little bit more confusing uh, because it's the image of a mirror. And Paul says, now we see but a, a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we will know fully. And we want to know what on earth is he talking about? Surely we value mirrors precisely because they give us an accurate, accurate reflection of what we look like, even if some of us choose to ignore it. But in the first century, mirrors were made out of polished metal, uh, not glass uh, as they are today. So a mirror was good enough to tell the difference between you and a kangaroo, but it wasn't good enough to get a fly out of your eye. So when you looked in, the, it's a bit like, so you know this kind of silver stuff over here, you can't really see it from where you are, but if you, if you went and looked at that, you would be able to see something of yourself in that sort of polished surface but you couldn't see a proper, 
accurate reflection. And Paul uses those two images. We are the child getting ready to be the adult when we get to heaven. We are the image that we see faintly, we see outlines in this polished metal mirror, whereas one day we will know completely and we will see things clearly. Both these images remind us that uh, this present life is incomplete. One day we will know completely, now we know in part. I often think that would be a great thing to write in an exam, but I never had the courage. Paul's purpose is not to shake our confidence in the gospel. There was no one on earth then or now who had a greater confidence in the gospel. It's not to make us doubt what we know through his word, the Bible, and through the Spirit, but he does want to prevent our being satisfied with being children and looking in the polished metal mirror. The best is still to come. When the many partial and imperfect sides of this life are stripped away by the full glory of God's presence, it is above all his love that will remain. His love, the bedrock of reality that will not erode. And for that reason, the focus of our present incomplete lives should rightly be to take a stake and drive it, bang, 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 drive it into the bedrock of his love. Because of all the things we can invest in, investing in a knowledge and experience of his love and sharing it willingly and generously and lovingly with others, that will never be wasted. Never be wasted. Everything else will fade away. So we should ask God to fill us with his love as we strain towards that day when the imperfect disappears and we see God face to face. And all the things that appear so substantial around us now, today, will one day fail and fade, whereas the love of God will remain forever. So one prayer, may God's love be poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. One anointing of your hands. Obviously we do things with all kinds of different parts of our bodies, but our, our hands are kind of representative of all the things that we will go and do uh, this week. Uh, the anointing is a sign that we want love to be the only thing that is driving who we are or what we do. And three reasons to come. The first, the sense that your life is hollow. Looks great on the outside, but it's actually empty of love, the one thing that we need to be full of, and you are just exhausted by that. The second is that you feel, these are great words, but it's just too difficult to love in your circumstance, at your season of life. And so you've sort of given up. We want to pray God's love poured into your heart. Thirdly, you might feel that you're obsessed, obsessed with the here and now, making a difference, being noticed. And you've lost sight of that eternal perspective. You've forgotten that you're only a child and one day you're going to grow up when you see God face to face. Come and pray with us that God's love is poured into your hearts. 
The way we're going to do this is really simple. There will be four of us, and we will stand two of us on this side, two of us on that side. We have some oil, and we'll just ask you to come forward. There's no order to it. Just come when you're ready. Come forward. We'll pray for you. We'll anoint your hands. There'll be the chance if you want to pray a little later with people on the prayer ministry team. But for now, invite those who are helping me with this to come forward, and we'll just be two here, two here, Come and we'll pray with you. We'll anoint you when you're ready.